escape from plan A. Equality has nothing to do with whites. We, want e we don't want to be equal with the white man. He's not the criteria or yardstick by which equality is measured. He's not in a position to tell us we are equal. It's not his right. It's not his to do. Equality, we want equality. We had equality before the white man was created. We had, the, we had equality before the white man came into existence. And we want equality whether the white man is on this earth or not. Equality means the uh, opportunity to develop all of our dormant potential, all, all of our dormant capability. Hi, and welcome to Escape from Plan A. And today we have, it's a very special episode because we, uh, one of our longtime friends of the pod, Trevor Bolio from Champagne Sharks, is uh, finally joining us. We've been trying to do this for a while. So I'm Oxford, your host, here with T. Hey, hey what's, what's going? going on? Oops. Yeah, T and T is going to be kind of confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Let's. Uh, we'll go with Trevor then. Yeah. 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 Let's just do that. Uh, okay. All right. So here with Trevor. Hey, how's it going? And Teen. Hey. And Jess. Hey. And last but not least, Mark. How's everyone doing? And uh, just for listeners, uh, Trevor said that he visited the dentist earlier this morning, and the I guess the Novocaine has only just started wearing off. So I mean, I think he sounds just like he does on the podcast right now. But if he sounds a little different, uh, it's because of the dentist. Uh, thank you. You mean that. he's going to sound extra fat? You're going to sound extra fat? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess for, for uh, Escape from Plan A fans, if you don't know, uh, if you don't listen to Champagne Sharks, uh, and you should, but if you haven't, um, one of the things that people apparently think about Trevor is based on his voice. They think he's obese or something. So <laughs> if, That's why if I he sounds, uh, and he's not obese. We've met him several times. Uh, uh, rest assured, he is not obese. Yeah, but yeah I've called it obesity. I, I call it obesity gate and obesity truthers because there's people who are uh, thinking I photoshop, I photoshop my pics and uh, <laughs> uh, like no matter what evidence, there are people who are still convinced that uh, I'm fat. So. <laughs> What's weird is they're kind of disappointed. Like, they actually want me to be fat, which is the weirder part. Like, uh, there's, there's a weird disappointment to it. <laughs> yeah, probably because they're so committed to some image of you, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm really glad Jess is here because uh, w once we hung out with Trevor at, at, at Teen's Rooftop, and we were, you know, we were like fishing for compliments and we were saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, oh, yeah, who, who do you like? And he's like, oh, yeah, I think Jess is really great, so... Um, <laughs> glad to be here we've we've been talking about uh you uh trevor quite a bit and and your work on champagne shark so i think you're doing something really special so really glad i had the chance to hop on to to have a talk with you yeah yeah likewise and i was uh telling the guys i always like your uh contributions and especially um um, not to uh, downplay the guys at all. I'm Bobby's fans of everybody, but the uh, <laughs> the all women episode you guys did was uh, really good. That was really really good. Thank I think you. I've never heard anything like that uh, before. I mean, I feel that way about the podcast in general that I've never heard anything heard anything like planning before but then that episode specifically i thought was oh in case listeners don't know what trevor's talking about or which episode he's talking about it's i think it's episode 36 it's the one with jess and christina and sam in which they talk about uh just like how asian women talk about wmaf amongst themselves i didn't even think there were that many um asian women who thought that way in 
any type of media because I feel like the podcasts or the things like Asian Voices, like for example, I went to Asian Voices yesterday because I was looking for a story that Teen posted about. And when I was there, I just went through the whole list of topics and it was just really, really uh, dire. It was, <laughs> it was a, it was a really like sad scene, like you know. And what you guys were doing that day, I think, is like a million times more interesting than the whole well, thank page you. of topics that I scrolled down. But that's a whole, that's a whole different topic. That Asian voices thing, because it's a black voices thing, and it's just as dire. It's under HuffPo as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I remember, I remember skimming through black voices a, a little while ago and thinking like, huh, this is just not. It's not what I'm feeling, you know, from other places where uh, with other black figures that I respect. It's like the the tone and the topics are just it's like they're coming from a different planet. It's really hard to get to kind of wrap my head around what what they're doing or what they're trying to do even. Yeah, I call both of them lifestyle um, anti-racism, where it's just like (laughs) about accessing like a bourgeois like lifestyle. Like that's the whole goal of the um, anti-racism. And it's kind of like training white people to give non-white people like seats at the table like you know that's that seems to be all they really want from white people is to train them just not to offend them or train them to um not have their family say something weird at thanksgiving dinner it's (laughs) not really anything more bigger than that which seems like seems to be a waste of such a big platform it's it's like to me this stuff is like diet it's like diet wokeness it's like the kind of racial politics you engage in after you have like a you know papa john's pr nightmare it's to me it's just it's all of like the hard stuff like all of the real problem the real world problems that 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 race and gender can present in society in the ways it fucks a lot of things up the way we approach it and it just ignores it and then it just starts talking about you know how this movie made me feel or could we stop using this word things like that you know it's just completely been deionized and you know neutered and by the time people who actually think a lot about this stuff or live it when you read it you're just like why is it always about your feelings why is it always just about you know how this movie or this tv show made you feel you know yeah they always they get really creepy to me like like i i always read the articles and maybe this is a statement on the writing quality as well, but it's it always reads to me like a a school report, like a book report or a paper <laughs> that you're writing, uh, and you're writing for a teacher, right? You, yes. You're writing for a teacher. You're trying to get a feel for what the teacher wants to hear, so you get a good grade out of it. So you're never going to be pushing the envelope too far. And who was and, and who was a teacher? For, That's the and other it's, question. And it seems pretty. Yeah, to me, it's it's like it's it's liberal white people. You're literally asking them to grade you, to to applaud you a little bit, tell you how smart you are, uh, and then say you feel included. And a grade at this point are like retweets and likes on Twitter. So it's like, yay, we made it a white. Yeah, I think it's us. it's a, it's advocating for like you know the the way people you know the solution to this stuff is a lot of like personal sensitivity and awareness to my problems you know and the the I think the people that it's appealing to the teacher so to speak like. It's it's always people that are already assumed to be good on that, right? It's it's appealing to white people that uh, already feel like they're sensitive to it, that already feel like they're in compliance with what this person's writing. So the what I'm saying is like 
the target white audience is always already on their good side. Even though, you know, a lot of this stuff sounds critical, it's not really, to me, really pointing any fingers. Um, that's that's another yeah, part Yeah, it's, it. it's not yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, what are, the fingers and points are things that don't really change anything in the bigger power structure. It's like, um, hey, hey, just think about saying this next time instead of this when you're around a non-white person. It's all little things that you can do to kind of make you feel better, like a little type of penance or something. But it doesn't actually make you give up any real power, any real... I mean, you really see it when you do any type of anti-racism that actually kind of bristles against their ideas of themselves as one of the good ones. That's when you really see a lot of actual anger come out. And I actually want to ask if you guys have gotten on the radar of any um, like white liberals or progressives that I've reacted to you uh, negatively or, or if that hasn't happened yet, I was wondering. It's been mostly, when we get on the radar with white liberals, right, Oxford, it seems it's pretty positive usually. It's, it's mostly negative when it gets on the radar of Asians. Yeah, well, the Asian liberals. It's mainly the white women too. Like the couple of times we've been mentioned on some podcasts, it's white women. Yeah, I mean, just recently there's, there's a podcast called The Waves it's a slates. I think it was it used to be called like the Double X Gap Fest or something. But they actually did a podcast on a segment of it was dedicated to uh, to all the boys I've loved before. And the the host of that episode, Christina Cadarucci, who's a who's like a feminist writer for Slate, actually brought up my article and she was like, "Oh, it was really interesting." So the most of the the negative feedback we've gotten are from Asian liberals, uh, you know, like the mainstream kind of sidekicks to the white liberals and i think we should take that as a compliment that if if we rile these people up so right and also earlier on um there was another one of oxford's articles was mentioned uh on the past present podcast which is another collection of i think three fairly liberal white women uh, it, it's like two so, well, white women yeah, professors a, they're all professors i think two white women and and a white man right oh and and there's a yeah, man too and, right? and that article was about it was one of my white first man. ones i wrote yeah. which was all about uh, like why the alt-right might appeal to Asian men and why we should like stay the fuck away from that. Right. And yeah, that was, that was quite a while ago. But yeah, I remember when that first came out, we were like, oh, it was, but it was the first. Yeah, mention we were like, it. oh, yeah. shit, we, we were we were so excited when that happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, um, yeah. we started we so started I, like yeah. uh, diving into deep topics right away. So let's let's just take a step back. And uh, Trevor, why don't you just give us uh, the story of how Champagne Sharks got started? Um, yeah, I was just kind of, um, tweeting into the ether and stuff. And it was a kind of a way to blow up steam because I used to feel like a lot of things that I felt about race, because a lot of people, my friends and family have very kind of normy, um, post-racial or liberal like politics on race. So I was like to not always seem like, uh, the crazy guy, like family gatherings <laughs> and stuff. It's more... It's more, um, I started enjoying like Twitter, like to vent about stuff and, you know, you just talk to strangers and stuff. And then it started like resonating with, um, some people and it was kind of weird because originally, um, most of my followers were like, uh, black people, but I didn't have like that many, you know, but I mean, compared to now, but, um, the guys from Chapel Trap House, which is um, the white socialist um, politics and comedy podcast, uh, they invited me on. Actually, name backtrack a little bit. Uh, someone from Thought Catalog at, said they wanted to interview me because they saw that I was, I would like 
debate with alt-right people, but I would kind of debate with them in a way that was uh, kind of funny. And he's like, I want to um, talk to you about how you talk to alt-right people because it's different than how most people talk to them. And I kind of just try to make them look look like stupid. So I did that interview. That interview went very well. The guys from Chapel asked me to be on their podcast to discuss. It was right after um, Trump won. And I was one of like, the few people that was saying, I think uh, Trump has a chance, like on Twitter. Like, I don't know why everyone's acting like he doesn't. Or, And I would say things like, I think um, because everybody in the media is like a white liberal and the target demographic of Hillary Clinton, they're looking at these debates like she won. But they're thinking of it like debate class or the West Wing, where, where you just like, you know drop stats but i'm like the average person doesn't want to hear um well go to my website and read the stats like it's not aaron sorkin it's not how the real world they just saw him act like a so-called alpha and just like dominate the conversation and he brought up problems that she wouldn't even bring up which is even though he had no solutions for them people would rather at least have the problems acknowledged yeah i think at that time like liberals do like they could see they could see uh, Trump dominating, but they didn't recognize that as a win. They thought he was like hurting himself. And yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so out of touch with how a lot of people actually think. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like a lot of people do kind of value that still. And just because in your like bubble, that's frowned upon. Like, you know, like they people in like in the Midwest aren't saying, wow, he's really mansplaining there. Like, like they don't talk like that. That's not, they don't think like that. And so I ended up on Chapo and just, just to wrap this up after being on Chapo, that's when, um, my follower count blew up and it was one of the more popular episodes at the time. And a lot of people kept asking me to do a podcast after that appearance. So then that's what made me, um, that's what made me do it. That that sounds in many ways a lot like the thinking that we had behind Plan A, which is why Champagne Sharks, I think, has become sort of a like a, we we started listening to it fairly early on and like in within Plan A's lifespan, and there just are these sort of sh- some striking parallels between, for example, like how you you all got started and how we got started and sort of a dissatisfaction with mainstream liberal viewpoints on on race and gender in particular. Uh, but where does that leave where does that leave you do you think because you know we're I think w- one of the first big articles or one of the first popular articles that we put out was one by Oxford about the da- you know the dangerous appeal that the alt right could present to to Asians particularly young Asian um, guys and how you know it it after after Hillary's loss and after you you see the sort of like mainstream liberal collapse, there's this concern of like, well, where does that place us? Where does that place Asians? Because you know we used to cling so heavily to liberalism, and now it's kind of like been it's 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 not it's not in power anymore. So where does that leave people? And I think that's kind of what sort of the meta theme of what we've been trying to tackle a lot of times is like what what kind of political identity can you have in sort of the Trump world? And it's I don't know what the answer is per se, but I I think that when I hear Champagne Sharks, I get the same kind of uh, trying to tackle the confusion that liberal vacuum has kind of left. Do you know what I mean? 
Oh, no, I was going to say one thing I'll say about myself. I think a lot of people fall into this trap. There's this idea because we kind of look at how the white mainstream has framed everything that we just kind of end up thinking that our options are to just do pick like a white camp, whether it be like liberalism, conservatism, socialism, feminism, MRAs, all right, and then find a way um, to, you know, dive into that camp. And then what always ends up happening is at some point, well, it's my personal experience. I can't speak for anyone else. At some point, you always end up bumping up at a point where that dominant ideology that you've decided to subscribe to is now kind of bristling against something uh, against your racial group. And then you kind of find out that they only like you up until the point that your um, views kind of align with their larger project, which is fair. Like if your larger project is liberalism or socialism, at the end of the day, that's going to be your primary um, responsibility, like white liberalism, white socialism, like whatever. Uh, to give an example, like in, in DSA, right, which is, um, you know, Democratic Socialists of America and stuff, there's always this group of black socialists or queer socialists or um, whatever who are always trying to make the uh, whole organization way more focused on black and queer issues and creating like, you know, a, a black and queer or people of color manifesto and every, and all this stuff. And then what I think is, okay, that's a socialist organization. When you go there, you have to expect them to be socialists. That's what their project is. Like you can't go there and expect them to care about your things as much as you do, you know? So, uh, I think, I think what people like, like they're doing what they're supposed to do. Like you have to do what you're supposed to do, but you have to find your own type of space to, uh, do it. And you can work with them to the degree that they don't actively step on your, uh, people's toes. But I mean, to get to the answer to your question, I think what people have to do is try to figure out, how to create their own spaces and weaponize those spaces. Like, for example, if there was a large, sizable chunk of Asian Americans or black Americans who could agree on specific agendas. And that's another thing. Like, people, don't, a lot of times people don't really know what they want. Like, for example, if you get a bunch of uh, black woke people in a room and you say, okay, what do you want? You'll hear like a hundred different things. You know, you won't hear like, five or six things. And one thing I find interesting was when I went to, um, I went to this, um, I forgot what the name of the advocacy group was, but it was a Latino immigration group. You can go to their site and see four or five clear bullet points, like specific immigration quotas they want lifted, specific amnesties, like, you know. And I don't know enough about Asian, advo Asian American advocacy to know, um, if they're better on this than black people are, but black people, maybe the one thing would be affirmative action, but you know, some people will be talking about getting more roles in movies. This Oscar so white, let's get some Oscars. Um, so like, like if you go to black lives matter, it's just a bunch of like very vague feel good, like um, mantras when you go to their thing, like, you know, getting rid of uh, oppressive gender roles. Like 
How do you quantify that? I think what people have to do is make their own type of um, space. Pick like four, five, or six clear-cut targets, like measurable, actionable, like trackable targets that you can make a time frame on and then just present to everybody who is willing to meet the most of these five or six things, Democrat, Republican, socialist, whatever, who is willing to make the most things on this list happen and whoever will do that will deliver these votes in a block. And we don't, we're not calling ourselves liberal. We're not calling ourselves socialists. We're not calling ourselves whatever. And I think if you want to do some stuff with liberalism or socialism or whatever, you can do that on the side in those organizations. Yeah, I think I think the problem has been I mean, I get what you're saying, but like I think the problem has been or, or what's been going online um, with Asians has been sort of just like trying to uh, agree to terms of even talking to one another. And that's where exactly. Yeah. And that's where Champagne Sharks is really I want you to kind of get into the Champagne Sharks universe that you pick. like if people listen to the pod. There's just a certain sort of like um, a, a universe of like online black and white personalities that you're going to run into, like archetypes. And I kind of want to get into that Champagne Sharks taxonomy of people, because when I hear it, I think I can easily map the things like like a Blavity Black, as an example. Like I can easily map that, you know, to certain like Asian archetypes as well. And it, the world yeah, of Champagne Sharks because, because feels a lot like Asian Twitter and, and, and online Asian American. You know? Yeah. When I discovered you guys, I was very shocked at like all the analogs. I went to like Next Shark and I'm like, okay, I can see what the black equivalent of this would be and <laughs> so forth. I, I, yeah, it was very, very fascinating. But but yeah, like um, for us, I'm not sure exactly what the Asian Blavity would be, but there's a site called Blavities for black millennials. And it's just that diet wokeness that lifestyle uh liberal anti-racism that uh people are into and actually blavity was the site uh they've had a lot of uh terrible um articles and whatever but what's interesting about blavity is it's become it, it wasn't a uh a term that i coined i mean i might have played a role like in popularizing it to a degree but i didn't coin the term it was uh People have been mad online, like black people, about Blavity Blacks for like a while. And it's hit like full steam. And um, But all these people have a kind of privileged place in the discourse because they're the type of black people that make white people the most comfortable. And this is something I always wonder, and you can guys can give me a theory on this. I wonder if white liberals, both the ones who elevate these people and give them like writing and uh, jobs and platforms... And the ones who are their fans, because a lot of these people have way more, way more white fans. They don't really have any black fans. I wonder if they themselves know that these people don't actually reckon, uh, represent a vast majority of uh, black people and how they think and believe. Oh, I, I don't think. Or if they I don't actually think they believe, believe their own bullshit. Yeah, I think the equivalent um, for of blavity black for Asians would be something like reappropriate and. I don't think that they believe that they represent Asians on a mass scale. I think that they believe that they're proselytizing like a view of politics and race and gender that Asians have to catch up to. So there's a very like normative aspect to it right. where they're yeah. preaching and they're lecturing. They're not so much representing. 
that's that's work yeah I, I don't th- I definitely think they're not tr- they're not trying to speak for what Asian opinion is uh, they are very arrogant about saying this is what Asian opinion should be I'm the good one it's it's very performative and it's 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 almost like a re- an embarrassed reaction like they saw the state of the house and they're kind of they're, they're kind of outside in the front lawn waving their arms saying like no 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 don't go in don't go in like uh, my house is better right and everyone inside's like who's this who's this crazy person shouting on the lawn like what's going on um that was a really tortured metaphor but uh, no but, but what, you de- really... what you're describing reminds me of like when you're um the black or the asian kid and you've managed to fit in very well and then that kind of uh extra asian or extra black cousin or family member shows up where your white friends are and you're like oh my god like this person's gonna ruin it for me. I feel like that's what a lot of race writing is like, trying to. Yeah, I think you hit mm, the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually yeah, the yeah. the plot to American Born Chinese, which is a very popular graphic novel by Jean Luen Yang, uh, and it's about this uh, young Asian American boy who really wants to. He, he like literally wants to become white. There's like a there's like a panel in which he like dreams of having like blonde hair and everything. Then he I don't I forget if it's actually a real person or maybe just a figment of it, of his imagination. But he has uh, uh, yeah I've I've actually read this graphic novel. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, I, I know what you mean. It's kind of unclear if it's even real. Yeah. Yeah, and he has a cousin who's literally named Chin Ki, <laughs> like Chinky, and he's just every fob stereotype. And I thought that's a very good for you know both for both men and women. That's that's like the primal fear as an Asian American that you you're trying so hard to assimilate. Then these one of these like 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 trashy Chinatown Asians comes and just blows up your gig. And and wasn't the cousin like chinky? Not even like a current stereotype. Like I think he looked like one of like yeah he had Chinese the uh, stereotypes like like like, like, food, yeah, like the, the, the Q not and everything. Yeah. He looked like a like stepped yeah. out of like propaganda poster from the twenties. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like the yellow claw, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a very good, uh, it was a very good graphic novel. But yeah, I mean, I was... think that explains who they are. But on top of that, they get a lot of patronage um, from up top. So a lot of these, like a lot of these organizations on the Asian side, like Eighteen Million Rising, um, and uh, your and favorite others. team, yeah, my favorite. Uh, they're all they're all funded by um, they're all pretty well funded by uh, philanthropy, white philanthropy, and. So they're they're chosen in a way. So they, like that may be who they are, and and they're you know embarrassed of of the sort of like um, of you know the non heterodox nature of you know Asian immigrant communities and how they don't align properly with mainstream liberalism, and they'll do what they can to try and clean up the uh, unwashed masses. But uh, you know, be one thing if okay, that's just what they believe and that's what they're trying to do. But it's always these kinds of groups that get uh, philanthropic support and they're the ones that are you know that have money and that can are are freed up to do it full time and so like nobody buys it like nobody believes it like I, I know t- so many Asian immigrants that like read the things that they say about um, you know the 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 just v- like Topics that honestly set Asians apart. I, I, there's no, there's no way, to, there's no reason to dance, beat around the bush. But like, you know, when it comes to affirmative action, as an example, you know, Asians tend to fall on the wrong side of the liberal uh, viewpoint on this, for better or for worse. Uh, but that that side, the you know, the the, the 
the the part of 18 million rising in that complex that's constantly talking about affirmative action is always representing like a mainstream liberal view of it which is very pro affirmative action and the you know a, normal reg, you know Asians on the street don't understand that at all but that viewpoint mostly gets ignored because it's not consistent with you know what 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 the with what the liberal philanthropic complex really wants to wants to put out there you know so i think it's a it's, i think it's an issue of white patronage that's kind of causing a lot of problems yeah and one thing with that white patronage that i noticed and i've gotten into um arguments with white people online and even in real life about this is because of the white patronage a lot of people i think find themselves having to um argue their points in a way that keeps white people happy and as a result, you have to kind of conform to white people's views on race, immigration, etc. And, and to give it to give an example, there was uh, a black person who was not a conservative, but was just um, some academic, and they were talking about how um, black how black unskilled labor is hardest hit by um, unskilled immigration, and that. You can't just think of things in terms of identity politics and just ask for open borders because, you know, as a black person, you think, oh, I have to stick up for all oppressed people. Every single every single um, oppressed group's struggle is interchangeable. Like and like it's not interchangeable. You, you know, like, like um, the white liberal doesn't face the same economic existential threat from unskilled labor that the poor black person does there's a class there's a class thing there's a um etc and this person got roasted not just by uh white liberals but by uh black liberals you know they're saying oh you're basically a black conservative and the person this person though wasn't you know but what was happening was the black liberals are almost more vehement about it than the white liberals like i could see some more white liberals saying oh this is an interesting interesting point i didn't think about it that way i don't know if i agree but the black liberals were very inflexible and it was i started realizing they were just very very scared of what white liberals would think exactly yeah having uh yeah yeah yeah. because their patrons they they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them yeah yeah exactly And, and also they might get them more patronage like if i shout the loudest and getting noticed by white liberals for doing it, I will be standing out as one of the good black ones to give future patronage to. And I think similar things happen with Asian people where uh, because white people just see all um, minority struggles are interchangeable just to varying degrees, uh, when there's something that might have a conflict with uh, a black issue, like with the affirmative action, um, the Asians rush to parrot the uh, liberal talking point on the thing, even though their concern with affirmative action is, you know, different, materially different than a black person's concern with it. It's, uh, you know, everyone's trying to argue their anti-racism or their point within a framework that will keep white liberals uh, happy. And that's something I think is important to break out of. But I, I don't know how. Yeah, totally agreed about that. Well, it's uh, a vision of liberalism that flatters existing power. That's the most creepy part about this. Um, it's it's despite the rhetoric, it's all crafted around creating this impression of 
complete, utter dominance by the existing power structure. Even when they talk about activism, it's kind of pleading for, say, white people to step in and solve the problem. It's kind of framing this as an unsolvable, monolithic, huge problem. Uh, so, like, embedded in their, quote, activism is also a sense of hopelessness. Like, there is there is no solution to this. This power structure will forever be this way. Uh, uh, somebody said something uh, along those lines uh, that I heard the other day that I thought was so good. They said, uh, they said it's about black people, but I think it goes for everybody. It says, um, black people don't really want equality or power or to win. They just want a benevolent master. And I think... Uh, a lot of that goes with other groups too. Like a lot of groups just want, like they want white people to remain in charge, things to be how they are. But just, you know, don't be, don't be, don't be jerks to us. Yeah, yeah. Just be, just be good. Yeah, be better. Yeah, be good bosses. Be good. Yeah. Be good masters or whatever. So I totally agree with what Jess is saying there. Yeah, at the and at the very least, it's like, it's like maybe. On the one extreme, it's, yeah, actually wanting that benevolent master. And on the lower end, it's it's still, uh, it's, please be around so we can blame you. <laughs> yeah, good one. Yep. Well, yeah, yeah. That goes around to, that goes to the fact that it's sort of an industry now. This sort of diet, lifestyle activism, where if they did, they did flip the structure or, or, or change actually happened what would they do because they probably wouldn't be there to actually like administrate or manage that that new reality right so right and it's by the time you're funded and you're you know paying your rent depends on the existence of racism in the world i feel like you're very perversely incentivized like literally are you are you trying to tell me that they are that they are trying to make their own jobs obsolete which I think is a good point to jump in that Plan A makes exactly zero dollars and zero cents. So we, uh, we are freed from that. But I think that's a, that's a good point. It's this conflation of inclusion and equality because they're very two, two very different things. Inclusion implies like a host guest relationship. If, if you want to be included, somebody has to include you. And that is not true equality. You're still at, you're still going to have to like jump through hoops do a dance, sing a song to to be invited in, and I think I think some people generally just do want inclusion because they they will they like what the status quo is. Their only real complaint is that they are not included. And if they actually if we were actually to tear it all down uh, for like true equality, well then they kind of lose out on all the all the good stuff that they grew up wanting to be included in. And we have to make that distinction. And one of the performative parts that I think fools a lot of people is um, we were talking about having white people around to blame. And there was this thing, there's this fake sticking it to white people dance that gets done. Like, you know, time to have a privilege call out, like, you know, I'm gonna call out your privilege or check your privilege. And I think that a lot of that has a BDS, BDSM um, aspect <laughs> to it. Like, really? <laughs> like, um, and it's even creepier because a lot of um, those people, uh, for example, in that um, intersectional black feminist uh, media, a, a lot of those figures are, are are literally into BDSM. Like, like. Um, oh, really? W- w- yeah, yeah, yeah. One site, one site, the root uh, wrote uh, had that a fiction. Um, oh yeah, I read that story. Yeah, I read that story. Issue. Oh and, wow. Okay, and, and so was, you're saying there's a sadomasochistic. Uh, aspect to this they enjoy the 
the pain. Yeah, a lot of the white people, the white liberals, they enjoy the pain. But one of the things with... Oh, the white liberals. Yeah, yeah. One of the things with BDSM that a lot of people don't really get is that the submissive, whoever's paying the money is in charge, no matter what the optics are. So it's like, if I'm a submissive and I'm paying a dominatrix, a lot of those guys turn out to usually be like high-powered people, like top attorneys, top CEOs. And they're such control freaks. They even become control freaks about how they submit, how they're weak. They even have to be weak on their own terms. So they have to create this space and these parameters in which they can be submissive. So at the end of the day, the submissive is still the boss. The submissive is still the one who's paying the money. The submissive is actually the one telling the dominatrix what to do, what they like. Uh, That's really interesting. They're the client. And I think, but some people are dominatrixes would like to believe that they're really dominating these people. And that's a self-flattering thing. I think these, this is the same dynamic. They, they're being called out on their terms. The minute you call out these white liberals on terms they don't like, like say, for example, you say, um, I think Hillary is not much better for black people than Trump. You know, you, you violated the BDSM contract. Like, look, you're not allowed to call me. And, and they will smack your hand really quick and, or they will fire you and find another dominatrix, uh, to pay. So don't yeah. follow the rules. One thing, one of the, that's really interesting. I think one of the terms <laughs> of that BDSM um, sense of liberal self-flagellation is that you can't really say white people and certainly you can't call them white people. And above all, you can't call them white men. I notice a lot <laughs> of like the Asian bloggers and stuff that they'll, they'll, they'll call out Asian men. They'll, they'll, they'll call out Asian women. They'll sometimes talk about white women, but sort of in a feminist light, but they never say white men. They'll say white pa- they'll say white patriarchy in a sort of generalized institutionalized thing that doesn't really exist at any individual level. So they won't directly or personally confront white males like at as people. They'll confront these structures, these abstract structures like white patriarchy, but everyone else they'll, you know, directly confront like Asian men have to this or Asian people are, you know, or if they do say white men, it's very clearly implied that what they really mean is like the toothless hick from Idaho or maybe like the douchey finance bro from Wall Street, but never like the good white man. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that kind of knows that with um a lot of because I think we can both agree both these spaces are very um female dominated, but not even female, but uh, feminist because people use it interchangeably because there's a lot of. Asian females and black females who do not kind of subscribe to what this dominant media class is doing, you know, but I think a lot of the um, feminists in both camps want to kind of, they kind of want to replace white women. So it's like, who didn't want to replace them for a lot of times it's white men. So they can't really go too hard at the white men because part of the selling point is, we can be better matches or partners for you than even white women can. And just to clarify, that's like uh, the feminism that we're talking about is, is a very particular type of kind of like online uh, feminism that's really derived from bougie white feminism and, and the kind of like 
like uh, the PLC allies to that, and as opposed to a, a whole scale condemnation of feminism. Yeah, I feel like there was a lot of that was in that um, movie um, to all the boys I loved before. Like a big part of that underlying current of that is I can be a better match for you than even the white woman. And I think no one wants to say that out loud, but I think a lot of the appeal that people were giddy about in that movie, and it kind of went across races. A lot of these same um, black feminists were championing this movie very hard too, even though it wasn't about um, black women in any shape or form, but they felt that same um, sense of victory that the Laura Jean character felt at the end. Like, I think it was very important that she beat a white woman in that movie. And I and I'm just saying that I think that same dynamic is what's behind not calling out white men by name. You know, it's uh Yeah, I you agree. don't want to kind of ruin that. Uh, we kind of also saw an even more extreme dynamic of this with the Prince Harry wedding in which uh, everything I read in the mainstream magazines was how this was such a victory for for like black people in general, but especially for black women. But we're talking about not only like the the symbolic, the, like the biggest symbol of just like brutal British imperialism, but this is the dude who you know wore a Nazi uniform. You know, just I, I don't know, just like a little while ago. And yeah, he might have improved, but still, like if you're gonna talk about privileged white guys, I, you don't get more privileged white guy than Prince Harry. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And as I said, something that, you know, I like to make clear is like there's no um, issue with the idea of interracial dating. Like, I don't care who anybody dates. It's just when there's this toxic dynamic behind it is, um, you know, the problem. Like if if it's doesn't have this toxic dynamic, it's like, you know, date, date who you want. It's my personal because that's something that happens too. a lot of people will then come and say, oh, so you're being racist. You think no one should interracially uh, date. And it's like, I don't know if people really believe that when they say that. I think sometimes people just kind of uh, make the accusation of that just well, to kind well, of... Well, and it's, it's not just, and it's not just interracial dating as a concept, right? It's, it's, it's specifically uh, non-white and white. Exactly, you know? yeah. Yeah, that's, that's they're not a huge be part upset. that people leave out. You know, they're not, they're not upset. Right, they're not upset with like, they're not talking about like, a, you know, Asian women dating black men or black men dating Hispanic women or black men dating Which happens you know, quite Southeast a bit, Asian women or something like that. I don't think Asian guys does, or, or right. I don't think Asians right. talk about it particularly because uh, there isn't a t- like Tiger Woods as an example is not someone who his life story presents any sort of toxic feeling, right? Like it's not part of something that you know, I think Asians identify as oh, this pattern that I constantly see, uh, you know. Right. Well, uh, uh, other than no, his no, specific yeah, 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 yeah. But his but, background, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, it's, <laughs> but, but I think that, right. um, like, for example, uh, the, the stuff that popped up, like, during Crazy Rich Asians where, you know, everyone's talking about, like, oh, this is, like, going to be this huge milestone for, which, by the way, I think it was in its own way. I mean, I'm not trying to denigrate the movie, but, like, when when they announced that the the Asian male lead was going to be half white, I feel like you know there the the criticism or the the stuff that people were raising around that like you know of course it's I think the frustration was pattern recognition 
right? It's like every time that there's going to be like this really positive or really uh, uh, visible representation of Asian men or Asians, like white somehow asserts itself into that, right? So you got a half white guy and people were like, oh, now you're saying that, you know, he's not a legit Asian. Now you're saying like he's not... Um, you know, he's not Asian enough. Oh, oh yes. So, so, so the straw man comment. It's a straw man yeah. comment, and I think that what what the you know a part of it, I think, is the responsibility of people who raise the criticisms to be. And and this is why I think champagne sharks is important. This is why we try to do what we do is because like you kind of want to make sure that people are raising the right kind of criticism. And at least for me, I don't know what other people think, but you know, it wasn't just that he was half Asian that was the problem. It was that he was has to be half white. So, like, you know, people, like, <clears throat> you just know that they wouldn't cast a half black, uh, half Asian guy. They wouldn't cast the Blasian as the lead. Mm, yeah, you're right, you're but, right, so you're what, right. But what and, justifies and, 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 that, uh, you know? Yeah. What, what, what justifies that, you know? It's not, it's, it, it's an issue of, like, why is it always half white? Why is it not half black? Uh, and there's no lack of Blasian actors, you know, so... Yeah, something that's interesting that's similar to that. I was uh, watching. I was watching these terrible shows, uh, the Arrowverse shows on CW. Uh, it's like this, you know, Green, uh, the Arrow, Flash. I used to watch those shows. And something I find interesting about those shows, they would have a lot of um, Asian people on the shows because you know they'd end up always fighting like uh, ninjas or yakuza. You know, the, the usual stereotypical. Um, villains and allies like you know he learns martial arts from an asian guy and his daughter and what's interesting is like on arrow the flash all these shows whenever the white guy had to get with an asian woman romantically they would always cast a half white half asian person to play the asian woman but they would pretend that she was asian like she would be clearly like mixed with other stuff and i would keep looking up the actresses and there would always be um, half or sometimes even less than half Asian. And then when there was an Asian woman who was um, not to be a love interest or, you know, who's was with um, an Asian guy or who was like, you know, a crime boss who had like no um, romantic involvement with any white guy. And then they always cast full Asian women. And it happened on The Flash, it happened on Arrow, and it happened on some other shows, like, multiple times. And it's very similar to what you're saying. I was wondering why nobody uh, talks about it, but I guess it's probably like, like what you say. They would get accused of um, uh, de- denigrating the Asian-ness of those um, actresses. But I'm like, that's kind of messed up because those are the more plum roles on the show to be like the love interest. I- or yeah, I, th- whatever. I, I hear what you say. I think I found that the the general uh, the general problem is, um, if you really want to boil it down, is like it's much easier to uh, say that's the, that it's much easier to talk about what is there versus what's not there. And I think a lot of the criticisms that are valid are about what's not there, right? It's not necessarily that there's a problem that a half Asian person is playing a full Asian person, right? So they always, you know, there's this tendency to be able to like you know, steer the conversation only to what is actually happening. And you can't talk about the thing that never happens, which is, you know, it's never a full Asian or it's never a half black, half Asian or anything that is removed from whiteness. You never see that. 
So yeah. I think it's just this general difficulty. about to all the boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what is interesting about to all the boys, that's the first time I've seen a full Asian play a half Asian. So that was, I guess, a certain type of progress. Because the character was supposed to be a half Asian, right? Yeah, but I mean, like, uh, I mean, I wrote about it in the article, but the, the the underlying story of that is just so messed up that it's I, I think it's actually backwards. I think it would have been better if they had actually cast uh, a half Asian, but uh, it just reaffirmed the disturbing um, implications of the novel, which was kind of like this aspiration of, of like a full Asian writer wanting to be like half Asian. and But... Um, like like the the characters is clearly an extension of herself, but then if you ca- if you write yourself and cast yourself as half Asian, but you pretty much killed off your mom, there's nobody really in the uh, in the house that's Asian still. It, it is yeah. I mean, like if it, people are curious, you can go read my article. <laughs> yeah, it's actually yeah. I I know the author um wrote it, she wrote that op-ed uh to for about the casting decisions in in that. Uh, I actually think it it's not really such a great win uh, because given how upsetting the entire story and premise and all the implications are um, her rationale to use a full Asian actress in this role is kind of saying she wants this to be a message for other uh, fully Asian w- uh, girls just like she was bingo yeah so it's kind of like inviting this whole this this population of uh of of girls into this truly fucked up dynamic into her fa- uh, into her fantasy yeah yeah without any buffer like or any like plausible deniability or anything like that 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 could have been invoked if they had used a uh, a hapa actress it was very disturbing to me how few people brought that up like um besides oxford's um besides oxford's piece there was another piece that and Inku Kang, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, Robert? yeah, that yeah. one. Like it was so few people, and it seemed to be such an obvious, glaring problem. But no one can get past the representation. It was very bizarre. Well, we kind of do our to, to ourselves, to be honest. Like uh, <clears throat> we kind of get, we do get, get kind of lulled um, into thinking that media rep is going to solve everything, and. I, I think a lot of well-intentioned Asians sometimes get get caught up in in uh, in those media rep movements and Oscars so white and white whitewashing and all this stuff. It gets so much attention that you know something like to all the boys like it just just by the mere fact that the lead is Asian, it just people are like, okay, we can't question it because this is exactly what we wanted. This is what we asked for. Um, you know, don't screw it up. Take take what you can get. I think is the attitude. But. But it's not just Asians, because just recently, uh, there was a new Netflix romantic comedy that was released. It's called Sierra Burgess is a Big Loser. And uh, the main character of that is the same actress who played Barb from Stranger Things. So I think the selling point of this movie, which I haven't watched, but from what I've read, is that she's supposed to be... um, I, I I think you could describe her as a kind of like plus size. She's not like conventionally attractive like most heroines of uh, rom coms are. So, I mean, that is also kind of a protected identity, right? But I, I was on Twitter. A lot of people were attacking this movie because they said it was fatphobic, transphobic, homophobic. And, the, and you know, these were like white people and, and uh, other, other people who were saying this. And what, what that told me was that people are very well trained to recognize certain times, types of um, just like fucked up things. Uh, 
so it, even in this movie that on, on the surface has a very positive message, they they were able to just sniff it out like like uh, you know like intercontinental ballistic missiles. But with, with something like Twelve the Boys I've Loved Before, in which the main group that's being left out are Asian men, uh, particularly straight Asian men. They're just so not trained to see that because their concept of social justice is 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 like when you learn something by rote. You can't on your feet see things. You know that you're supposed to look out for A, B, and C, but when D and E come up, you're you're just kind of flummoxed. I I'd almost say that they've been um, negatively conditioned to not see it. So it's not just that they're blind to it; it's that they might have seen it in the past or. Other people might have spoken up, but they've been um, criticized. So you know they they just don't. Yeah, they that's, choose yeah, not that's to a good point. It. Yeah. So by the way, I've noticed um, that uh, Trevor, you and you and Oxford are 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 real like diligent watchers and observers of young adult uh, content. <laughs> I feel like and that might I, be a backhanded compliment. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It's. You know, it is it, 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 no. I'm, I'm setting that up to sound not good, and then I'm gonna. But I thought about it more, and I realized I think what you two are doing is that young adult, young adult. Um, someone said this on Twitter. I forgot who it was, but they said that young adult uh, novels and movies have like a heightened capacity to do good or to do bad because the audience is young and impressionable. And it started making me think, like, why, you know, tobacco companies, like, target, you know, t- young teens and why, like, fascist and communist movements in the past, like, always had youth leagues. And if you really want to cite, I think, where a lot of the ideological um, content gets absorbed into the population, it's definitely through young adult um, content. And I think that's why it's such a weirdly, like politicized and controversial space and some of the most like you know the ugliest fights and public battles and spats uh online occur over young adult content and i think that's why i think there's this instinctive understanding that young adult stuff is just that much more influential you know than than stuff say just aimed at like older people or 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 something yeah i mean i think well, one thing to be clear, I don't actually consume young adult stuff, but I am into like the discourse around it. And I think what makes young adults so interesting is like I think children's books have a strong impact because, uh, for example, they say like the uh, the modern uh, environmental movement, uh, a lot of it in animal rights, uh, a lot of the people, I forgot how they found this or proved it, but they, they claim that Bambi and the scene of the mother dying and Bambi like radicalize a lot of people to create um, a environmental movement uh, later on. And, but I think with young adult, it's old enough. It has the influence that children's stuff does. It's close enough to that, but it's close enough to adult stuff to start including like that psychosexual type of stuff too. Yeah, it's set. Yeah, totally. I think it's setting yeah, the frame a for bridge. you know at puberty and and yeah, gender racial dynamics come into play. I think big time in the realm of of you know puberty and stuff because that's when you start sorting out like social yeah yeah what you know? what you like what your uh, attractions are. So it's still close enough to children's stuff to be impressionable. Like you're still at an impressionable age, but you're still old enough to start. Uh, thinking adult uh, thoughts but like I have this uh, theory I 
totally have it's totally unproven but my theory is that harry potter like changed everything because if you notice white liberals are obsessed with harry potter and they just oh, yeah. can't even talk about a- anything without doing it through the lens of harry potter like they talk about politics and they'll keep calling trump voldemort and they'll keep saying all this stuff and i'm like, like you're, you're adult people why do you have to use harry potter or superheroes to just talk about like grown stuff it's very very weird and it goes with liberals across the board like black liberals do it too like the rage has had that piece in new york magazine that was an excerpt from his memoir saying storm from the x-men uh raised me you know and it's it's just very weird and i think what happened is when harry potter happened everyone got excited because kids weren't reading and teens weren't reading and this was just going to be a huge thing that was going to make people read again and america was going to get smart again because all these people reading harry potter were going to grow up and keep reading adult books but instead what actually happened was harry potter just created ended up reading harry potter again yeah it just created adults who just read young adult stuff and now even like adult shows feel like young adult things like you know um so yeah i think young adult has become like the dominant discourse like people are stuck at that like they just became adults who just are into young adult stuff into like twilight into you ever see those twilight moms and where these moms who go to twilight without the kids that goes across the board like so many adult female critics were so into to all the boys like um and they weren't trying to review it from the view of a child like you know like like the way you would review a children's movie they're reviewing it like they were the target audience it's um it's a very interesting yeah we were uh, just in our plan a slack we were just uh looking at these tweets about bts and there were you know there are bts moms who travel across the country to drop like several hundred dollars maybe even thousands on these concerts and we were like that's i don't know that doesn't seem something seems off about that it's fascinating though it's so fascinating to me that that happens um because they don't even under bts does stuff entirely in korean and you've got these like latino women yeah. white women that go crazy that, for them that are yeah. just like i love the lyrics you the know, lyrics like wow <laughs> yeah well they read i'm sure they read the oh, translations okay. and, they, and they start to get to know it you yeah. know what's what's so weird to me is i was a uh, i was talking to a bunch of uh some women who who were who really like BTS, and you know they were telling me about you know how how beautiful Korean is, and then it's it's it, it was actually hilarious to me. They describe it the same way like people in people used to describe like Italian in corny in in corny flicks th- throughout the eighties. Like oh, it's a language of passion and and love and you know it's so vibrant and and it, it was just very strange to me to. Hear that, Jess, are they listening Korean. to the same Korean? <laughs> yeah, that's not the environment I grew up in. It was described as very different things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah 10, it, it's very ago. weird. That is it's very weird because you don't even know if that's progress. Like, you know, it's like, is that is that a compliment? Like, what is what's going on <laughs> yeah. there? But but you know something too. Yeah, yeah. You know thing, but that isn't that like white people every day. Uh, that's what that's what it feels like to be white. You know, one of the things, um, and and we should we should maybe talk about this a little bit while we still have some time, I guess. But um, we can go over time a bit. Uh, Special. Yeah, episode. I think I think a lot of it is like a, a lot of stuff that I hear online is is when they talk about like how Asians and blacks online interact. It it, it almost always has to center on like a few 
key traditional Asian black issues like um, we got to talk about the LA riots, right? Or, you know, things like that. And it's always these like, or, or we let's talk about like cultural appropriation of hip hop and, and things like that. And to me, a lot of that just sort of misses misses the point. I, I feel like one of the things that um, I, I get from the Champagne Sharks pod is uh, like in a way, Asian Asian Asians and Blacks can find themselves on the outside of the system of whatever you want to call it, white supremacy, the outside the system of traditional white liberalism and mainstream neoliberal uh, ideologies and stuff. We can find ourselves on the outside of it, which gives us, I think, very interesting viewpoints of it. And we're quite, we're you know, Asian men in particular and black men uh, are actually like pretty quite different, like in terms of, you know, our social situation and our, you know, socioeconomic situation. But I think that just gives us, um, different viewpoints of the same thing that you can try and, you know, you can try and corroborate. So like if a, if a black guy in America is seeing one thing and an Asian guy can corroborate that, it, to me, it's like, it's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> like it's probably, it's probably accurate, you know, and, and one of the things, go well, ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I think a lot of the problem too comes is that we tend to look at ourselves through like um, this white lens. So, I mean, even the idea of, uh, for example, this is current civil war going on in the black um, community about people are starting to finally realize that black people aren't a monolith. But even among black people, like a lot of black people are starting to realize like maybe black people who are descended from American slaves have different interests and conflicts than uh, black immigrants or children of black immigrants. And the same thing with um, Asian people like. I remember I listened to your podcast once and one of you, I think it was teen brought up that Asian America is not really a thing outside of America. And it's because of white people. Cause white people kind of lump all Asian people into one thing. But in Asia, like Koreans and Japanese and Chinese and all these places have their very distinct uh, conflicts. Like, like when you watch that Ali Wong special, she talks about like how her and her husband make fun of different types of Asians. And I'm sure like a lot of a lot of white people will not get that at first or it will be a novel to like a lot of them. But, um, yeah, I think it's kind of the problem with how Asians and blacks kind of deal with each other is that we're used to seeing not only ourselves, but our relationship with each other through that white lens. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. So since white people don't care about um, some of these topics that we talk about with Asians and black people, like uh, we ourselves end up not discussing like the topics that plan they or champagne sharks discuss when we talk about well i i think it goes back to the fact that you know uh, we don't make at least at plan a we don't make any money from the conversation so we're not motivated to try to find topics that will appeal to that sort of white lens all the time to get white attention and white dollars so uh, you know we're we're willing to talk about things that might not have any other relevance other than to Asian Americans uh, that that listen to us or read us, um, so I think that's one reason why we we tend to talk about things that you know the blavities or, or reappropriates might not talk about. The other thing is, I think uh, one of the one of the core, like if I'm trying to boil because there's so many um, there's so many parallels that it's almost hard to talk about because you, you kind of have to just ex- re-explain the whole thing. But if, if you boil it down, like if I try to essentialize what I think is 
what 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 you you know you and D and Mike see on Champagne Sharks versus what we see on Plan A uh, is observations about how uh, white people work. Which I th- I think at some point was it on Chapo when you told the guys like that you're on on Chapo that the original idea was to explain white people to black people. I I, I love that. I love that concept. Um, but what I've noticed is that, like, in listening to the pods up till this point, um, what what I see happening more on Champagne Sharks than explaining white people to black people is explaining the effects that white people have on black people. And I think that's what Plan A does, too, a lot. And And I think there's, you know, you always get into these, not you, but I mean people, like, always get into these sort of, like, online... Uh, deadlocks and fights over like what's the difference say between uh, you know talking about white people in a in a way that if I was talking about black people or Asian people would be racist and you, you know the answer is oh well there's institutional power behind white people right white people are powerful so I get to say whatever I want about white people I've never really bought that as an argument I because I feel like the, the way that doesn't – like the way to rebut that argument is simply to say I don't believe that's true because you're really talking about a ma- matter of like politeness and social conduct. You know, there's no proof to it. It's just like, well, I still find it offensive. So I think the difference is um, – and I, and, I, and I suspect that this is behind a lot of what you're seeing and a lot of what we're seeing is that there is something qualitatively different about white and white supremacy, which is – that, you know, non-white people buy into it all the yes. time. It, it, like, you rarely see, I, I, like, I, 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 you know, yeah, hoteps or, I, I like, Asian default, supremacists. Like, people yeah, don't buy into normative. it. I think white is default and normative, and I think that's uh, a big problem with that. I'm, I'm sorry, I cut off your question. No, 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 I was I was just about to wrap up, but just saying, like, you, you, you get these sort of, like, Asian supremacists or Asian nationalist, like, sub-identities. They're very niche, but, like, they do exist. And, you know, the same thing, I think there are black nationalists who can take things to a similar extreme. But the difference is, like, nobody follows them except for their own, right? Like, only, it's a very niche group, and it's not like, it's not like out in the world affecting people. But, like, for for, for Asians, definitely we see that white normative, uh, what did you call it? Like, the white normative standard or the yes, default. Yes, default and normative. It, um, it, it, it's like oxygen. If you're in a room and you're describing what's in a room... You're going to describe everything in the room except for the oxygen because you take the oxygen for granted. Like, you know, but if you throw a fish, if you throw a fish into the air, the, the oxygen is going to be the first thing it, it notices. Like, uh, I'm not supposed to be in the, Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like, that's for, for me as an Asian guy, like, it might be that I just don't, I never subscribed or understood the default normative as well. And I can, I can see the effects that it has on people. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of the commonalities come into play, which is like Asian people and black people don't have that much in common, like in terms of history or whatever, but we can still see this, this default normative operating. So to me, it's just makes it that much more likely or true that that's what's happening because I, I don't think that there's any real common shared interest that would make you know, champagne sharks see things this way and Asian people see things the same way unless it was actually happening. You know what I mean? I think something that creates a commonality is the fact that white people use a lot of the same playbooks with both of us. And 
when I was introduced to Frank Chin and I read what he was describing about like these Asian feminists being kind of weaponized and used against um, Asian men in a way that was disguised as being woke and pro-Asian, but in a way was kind of undermining that. I was like, wow, this is the exact same playbook that's happening now. And that fascinated me. Yeah, and I was I was gonna say there there are like a, a, other things that uh, I wanted to talk about on this part, like the the Lovey Ajayi incident, which has taken up I think the last two or three episodes of Champagne Sharks, which I think illustrates a lot of the same dynamics we see in Asian America. But that's like that's like another hour we could talk about that. There's also the the the, the Chetty Institute. I think it was it was was it by the no, it's not the Chetty Institute. The Chetty study. Uh, the Chetty study. Ross Chetty. Done by the Brookings Institute that caused a lot. Yeah, that caused a lot of controversy um, a couple of months ago. That was uh, uh, another thing that I think could illustrate uh, parallels between like Asian and Black American communities. But I, I think we'll we'll just put the, the Champagne Sharks episodes in the in the reference resources or and or you know Trevor, you can always come on again. You know we like oh yeah we hang yeah out, I so enjoy might as yeah. well like pot about it. Yeah, I definitely enjoy uh, chopping uh, up with you. But yeah, I, yeah, but uh, I think what we're approaching hour so we can just wrap things up maybe uh does anybody have any final thoughts uh i i trevor i've sold my apartment in in brooklyn so i'm gonna close at some point in the fall so if if we hang out on the roof roof deck again we should do it soon all right man sounds good to me and yeah and and trevor it was great having you on uh and uh, hopefully i'll be able to get on your podcast soon i know we've i really enjoyed your uh series about the forgotten people um you talked about uh Devante hart and I think uh, the discussion about adoption and and sort of family in the black community and uh, with myself and you and and maybe, uh, you know, just talking about it, uh, you know, would be a great topic to talk about. And and, and Jess, I'm worried that we mansplained too much. I feel like you didn't talk too much. I hope we didn't. uh... (laughs) Oh, no, not at all. This is the first of many. Yeah. 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 No, no worries. No, Trust no. me, just just ask these guys. It is, it's really hard to talk over me. Okay. So yeah, I was gonna say she'll, that, she'll, that is true. Okay. That is true. I was gonna say that's very true. <laughs> she'll butt in if she wants. Okay. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, there there is a chance. Um, Jess, maybe I can edit this out in case it like gets in the way of any like employment prospects. But Je- there's a chance Jess will be moving to New York City in the near future. So then we can all decide. Oh yeah. Out. That'd so, be good. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. Uh, uh, I, I was saying that like semi joking. Cause whenever I have a uh, female guest on, I always get a bunch of emails saying that I mansplain. So, so it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, just if it happens here, just send me in. I'll, t- I'll, I'll have a word. <laughs> great. Oh, and Trevor, I just want to say, uh, please recover. You've just been hit with this whole spate of injuries. Um, Hopefully you're recovering quite well. You had like a couple of shoulder surgeries. You broke your toe. Yeah, and, I don't know what's happened. Hopefully nothing else. Right? I just want 2018 to be done. I just feel like 2018, I've just been jinxed. I don't know what's been uh, happening. Maybe somebody like wish some kind of curse on me or something because of the podcast, but it's been working. But <laughs> <laughs> One of those angry, curious cat uh, questioners. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the first surgery went pretty well and it ended up being less than what they thought it was going to be. Like, they ended up being less of an injury. So my cast was off in a week instead of, like, the three to six weeks that they uh, claimed. So hopefully the next one goes uh, as well. Yeah, fingers mm-hmm. crossed, man. Fingers crossed. Also, I just wanted to add, I mean, this has nothing really to do with this episode, but, I mean, lately I've been 
contacting more just of people who listen to the show and everything. And, and a lot of people have said, uh, like, we look forward to, to listening to you on, you know, every Monday because we release on Sunday night. And, you know, I like always look forward to Champagne Sharks and, and the other podcasts I, I listen to. So, I mean, for, for people who listen, I just want to say thank you. And it's very, it means a lot to us that, that you, you know, like invite us into your lives and, and get something out of it. And yeah, we'll just, we'll just keep doing this. So don't, don't be afraid. We're not going anywhere. And we, we do this because we want to. So thanks to everyone who listened. Yeah, thanks. And, and um, let's definitely get together soon. Hi, thanks for listening to the Escape from Plan A podcast. This was an episode we had special guest Trevor Bolio from Champagne Sharks and joined by me, Oxford, Teen, Jess, and Mark. And if you like us, please subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and all those sites. And if you like us, please give us five-star ratings and even leave a review. It really helps us, I guess, jump up in the standings or whatever. And if you want to read our articles, please go to planamag.com. And we will see you next week. Bye, everyone. No need for introduction, you hear and you know why No siren to an error with the beast of lo-fi Put my face in the book cause my people are profile Erased from the books and my people are told lies Sky's the limit, go fly, Cali Green, we go high I mean black and no fire, but when you do, I grow wise Surprise, we grow thighs, double dose of broke lies We drove in those sides and losing hope it goes by I got Bam to my left and Eric on right Here to give a new America, like Erica Wright Try to take my title, never want to inherit the rights Yeah, Doc Robin City's finest